Right then, so we're going to pick it up from where we left off, 1 Kings 2. Now you might be thinking, man alive, there's a lot of Bible to be reading in one morning, but I mean, we're at church, what else are we going to do? Um, but it is worth seeing how these two chapters come together, um, if we're going to make sense of what's, it, it all works together. So if you try and preach on half of it, not the other half, it really won't make sense. So let's have a look. So, 1 Kings, chapter 2, verse 1. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the children, uh, of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies, as it's written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do, and wherever you turn that the Lord may establish his word, that he spoke concerning me, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jepha, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt round his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Barzillah and the Giladites, and let them be among those who eat at your table, for with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. There's also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Manhainam. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his grey head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was forty years. He reigned for seven years in Hebron and for thirty-three years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Do you come peacefully? He said, Peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, Speak. He said, You know that the kingdom was mine, and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, Speak. And he said, Please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Bathsheba said, Very well, I'll speak to, for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on the throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother. And she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. 
The king said to her, Make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. And on his side are Abathiah the priest, and Joab the son of Zerahiah, the king Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to me, and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. And to Abiathar, the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth, to your estate, for you deserve death, but I will not at this time put you to death, because you carried the ark of the Lord God before David my father, and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from the being priest of the Lord, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he'd spoken concerning the house of Eli and Shiloh. When the news came to Joab, for Joab had supported Adonijah, although he had not supported Absalom, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. And when it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he's beside the altar, Solomon went to Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, Go, strike him down. So Benaiah came to the tent of the Lord and said to him, The king commands, Come out. But he said, No, I will die here. Then Benaiah brought the king word again, saying, Thus said Joab, and thus he answered me. The king replied to him, Do as he said, Strike him down and bury him, and thus take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. The Lord will bring back his bloody deeds on his own head, because without the knowledge of my father David, he attacked and killed with the sword, two men more righteous and better than himself, Abner the son of Ner, commander of the army of Israel, and Amasa the son of Jephthah, commander of the army of Judah. So shall their blood come back on the head of Joab and on the head of his descendants forever. But for David and for his descendants and for his house and for his throne, there shall be peace from the Lord forevermore. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death. He was buried in his house in the wilderness. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in place of Joab. And the king put Zadok, the priest, in the place of Abiathar. Then the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, Build yourself a house in Jerusalem and dwell there and do not go out from there to any place whatever. For on the day you go out and cross the brook Kidron, Know for certain that you shall die. Your blood shall be on your own head. And Shimei said to the king, What you say is good. As my lord the king has said, so will your servant do. So Shimei lived in Jerusalem for many days. But it happened at the end of three years that two of Shimei's servants ran away to Achish, son of Makar, king of Gath. And when it's told Shimei, Behold, your servants are in Gath, Shimei arose and saddled a donkey and went to Gath to Achish to seek his servants. Shimei went and brought his servants from Gath. When Solomon was told that Shimei had gone from Jerusalem to Gath and returned, the king sent and summoned Shimei and said to him, 
Did I not make you swear by the Lord and solemnly warn you, saying, Know for certain that on the day you go out and go to any place, whatever, you shall die. And you said to me, What you say is good, I will obey. Why then have you not kept your oath to the Lord and the commandment which with I commanded you? The king also said to Shimei, You know in your own heart all the harm that you did to the David my father. So the Lord will bring back your harm on your own head. But King Solomon shall be blessed, and the throne of David shall be established before the Lord forever. Then the king commanded Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Well, in a minute, we're going to have a look at that passage. But before we do, there's a couple of things just to mention. The first is this. At the end of each sermon, we have we open things up for uh, an opportunity to ask questions. So it means that anything we've been thinking about this morning or anything related to the passage, you can ask a question about. We normally take about three questions, depending on how long it takes for me to answer the questions. Or you can make comments about what, what you've learnt, uh, but questions or comments uh, at the end of the sermon. Now, the reason I tell you that now is because I want you to know that it's coming, so you can be thinking of what questions you might like to ask. And it's a good opportunity for us to you know, further think about things. Maybe if I've overlooked something, or you'd like to look at things in a bit more detail, then obviously that's the opportunity to do so. Second thing to mention, is there an outline? There's an outline in your service sheet that you can use or ignore at your own will. If it's helpful, use it. If not, just ignore it. And then third and finally, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can spend time this morning reading about your servant David and his son Solomon. We thank you for the great promises that you made to him. And we thank you that we're benefiting from those promises now as we sit under your son, King Jesus, who you've established as your king over the whole world. We pray, Lord, that this would all give us a great confidence, not only that our salvation is secure, that your kingdom has been established, that we can be confident and look forward to a day where there will be no suffering, that we will rest in the uh, arms of your son, King Jesus. Amen. So, it is Monday morning, and it's time for you to do your morning Bible reading. And you find yourselves reading 1 Kings 1-4. to And you read how David couldn't keep warm, and how, because of this, they saw a beautiful woman, so that he could effectively use as her as a hot water bottle. And so you stop and think, what's God trying to tell me? It's really hard to know what to do with this sort of information. If you're using the Bible as a means of guidance of how to live, what actions are you going to take having read this in 1 Kings. You can't exactly take it literally. That's to say, even a king wouldn't get away with this sort of behaviour in this day and age. 
maybe you could soften it a little. If you have a tendency to be cold in bed at night, get married, and then there'll be someone to keep you warm. The trouble is, it all just sounds a little bit ridiculous. Nevertheless, God would have us know that nearing David's death, he took a young woman who kept him warm because his body was no longer able to regulate his temperature properly. He didn't sleep with her, but she did keep him warm. And since it's he, I mean, that's the very first thing we're told in the book of 1 Kings, it must be important. It has to be. It must have some theological significance. But what is that significance? Well, maybe if we look a little more broadly at today's passage, we can come up with an answer to that question. As you've seen, the account covers the end of David's life and the passing of the throne to his son Solomon. But when a king becomes weak, and when he's nearing death, that's when the kingdom becomes particularly vulnerable to would-be usurpers. In this case, David's weakness has meant there's been an oversight on his part. He hasn't announced who will be king after him. And this is something that Adonijah takes full advantage of. Now David has many sons, just to fill us in. So we start with Amnon, he's his first. Then he has a son called Kiliab, although elsewhere he's called Daniel. He has a third son called Absalom, and a fourth son, Adonijah. Interestingly, it's worth making note that Solomon is probably at least seventh of David's son. So we know of six sons before Solomon arrives, and of course there could be more. Now David's reign, when he reigned, it was actually full of problems, but not the whole of his reign. The problems all begin after his adultery with Bathsheba. Bathsheba has, uh, David has commits adultery with Bathsheba. She becomes pregnant with David's child. And David makes various attempts to cover up his sin, but they all fail. David then sends Uriah, who is Bathsheba's husband, into the thick of fighting for the very intention that he does get killed. At which point, David then marries Bathsheba. The child dies, but God gives David and Bathsheba another child. That child is Solomon. And Solomon is named... Jedediah, which means beloved of the Lord. And the implication is Solomon is God's chosen king to exceed in the line of David. But immediately after these events, David's kingdom follows a lot of unrest as a punishment for David's sin. Amnon, if you remember, is David's firstborn son. He rapes Tamar, who is Absalom's sister. Absalom, 
David's third-born son, then kills Amnon because of this. Absalom then goes on to make himself king, and David has to flee Jerusalem. So we're beginning to see that the latter years of David's reign over his kingdom were full of unrest. At this point, Amnon is dead. Oh, sorry. David doesn't want anyone to hurt Absalom, even though he's become king. So he insists that all his men protect him. But Joab, who's the head of the king's army, kills Absalom as he hangs in a tree. So, you've got Amnon is dead, so is Absalom, Kiliab, who's David's second born, we never hear mentioned again. So that means with the exception of Kiliab, Adonijah is now next in line for the throne. We've also seen how problematic Joab is. He causes his fair share of trouble for David. And it's interesting in today's reading because we see that when Adonijah becomes king, or makes himself king, he gets the support of Joab. Now in response to Joab's, uh, to, to Adonijah's self-appointment, Nathan the prophet and Bathsheba approach David. We read in verse 17. She said to David, My Lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my Lord the king, do not know it. Nathan then comes to corroborate Bathsheba's account. At which point, David acts decisively. David ensures that beyond doubt, everyone knows that Solomon will be the king of Israel. Adonijah flees to find sanctuary grasping the horns of the altar. And Solomon promises, if Adonijah is a worthy man, he'll not be harmed, but if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So this is the state in which David hands the kingdom over to Solomon. And one of the things David does is he charges Solomon to walk in the ways of the Lord. For if Solomon walks in the ways of the Lord, David's sons will always reign on the throne of Israel. But the kingdom that David passes on to Solomon is full of unfinished business. So first David mentions Joab, the commander of the king's army. We've already seen that he's uh, killed Absalom against David's wishes. We've seen that he's appointed and supported Adonijah as king. And also we see that Joab kills Abner and also killed Amasa. Now, for whatever reason, David had felt that his loyalty meant he wasn't able to remove Joab, but he warned Solomon of his craftiness and that he must be dealt with. 
there were some positive promises that David had made to people and he asked Solomon to keep them as well. Then there's also this fellow called Shimei who cursed David, but David forgave him after an ambiguous repentance. And once again, David warns Solomon and says he may be trouble, his repentance may not be genuine. So this is the state that Solomon takes the kingdom over. There's a lot of unfinished business to deal with. And that's what 1 Kings chapter 2 picks up on. As soon as David dies, Solomon must sort this mess out. So have a quick look at 2 Kings 2 verse 13. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, do you come peacefully? He said, peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, speak. He said, you know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom was turned about and become my brother's, though it was from the Lord. Now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon. He will not refuse you to give me Abishag, the Shunammite, as my wife. It looks like Adonijah is in love. Or is he? Now notice what's happened. We've had to wait a long time, but we finally got there. This explains the importance of those first few verses in 1 Kings 1. Those first few verses in 1 Kings 1 prepare us and provide the background for this request from Adonijah. Adonijah wants to marry David's hot water bottle. She's his concubine. When Bathsheba approaches Solomon, he immediately recognises that this is not a romance. By marrying David's concubine, he has a stronger claim to the throne. Adonijah continues his claim for the kingdom. So in verse 22 we read, King Solomon answered his mother, And why do you ask Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? As for him, the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. On his side, Abathiah, the priest, and Joab, the son of Zariah. We see that Solomon sees it for what it is. And acting swiftly, he sends his servant to kill Adonijah. Solomon does spare Abiath the priest. In all this, Modeling, Joab hears of what's happening and he seeks refuge at the altar, but Solomon has him killed. Finally, once again, Solomon's merciful to Shimei. He makes this arrangement. As long as he um, doesn't leave, he can live. But he does, so he too is killed. And so we come to the end of 1 Kings chapter 2 and we read this. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. 
So what are we to make of it all? We could simply conclude that Solomon is a harsh ruler, ready to kill anybody who gets in his way. It really does seem a far cry from the servant king who would take the path to Jerusalem with his face set on laying down his life for his sheep. So how do we make sense of it all? Well, at this point, it kind of just looks like any kingdom. You know, whenever a king dies, many other people come to compete in order to take his place. Ultimately, it's a battle of the strongest. Whoever's strongest, more ruthless, has the most support, wins. And it will look like this. Unless we appreciate the full theological significance of what's taking place. And the first thing to note is, David was God's Messiah. Which simply means that David was God's chosen king. And we read about David's thoughts in the Psalms. Of how David was worried because he was surrounded by his enemies. And it appears that his enemies get the better of him. But then all of a sudden God promises that David God promises David that his enemies will not prevail. And instead God raises David up, vindicates him before his enemies. Notice this as well. That God and his chosen king are so intimately linked that to oppose God, or rather to oppose God's chosen king, is to oppose God. So we see that when Solomon takes his place as king, many of David's enemies still remain. And so we get this similar theme. Solomon's enemies oppose God's plan to make Solomon king. And God will vindicate Solomon before his enemies. Solomon's reign really is the high point in Israel's history. His reign really will be a time of peace for the whole of Israel. David's was a time for war, but Israel, uh, Solomon's reign will be a time of peace. Now, I can't say too much about that because that's what we're going to come and see as we come on. But before peace is established, those who oppose God's plan, they must be dealt with. So here we see this. Solomon is the Messiah. And enemies will challenge his rule. They may appear to have got the better of him, only for God to raise his Messiah up and to enthrone him, making his enemies a footstool for his feet. Now, doesn't that language all sound familiar? And it sounds familiar because Jesus is the Messiah. And he will succumb to his enemies 
Not because they're more powerful than him, but because he's willing to lay down his life. And God will raise him back to life, vindicating him against the accusation of his enemies. Because he is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. And God will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. Because it's only when God's enemies are destroyed that he can fully establish his kingdom. It's only then that every tear can be wiped from our eyes. So Solomon is the great king who brings peace to the land of God, destroying all those who oppose God's plan. And what we're seeing here is a foretaste of Jesus' kingdom, where God will dwell with his people in peace, where no enemy can threaten his people, because God will establish the Messiah's kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you as we learn about King Solomon. We see here a picture of the Christ. How your chosen king was obedient and walked in your ways. As he set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing there that his enemies would raise, rise up against him, knowing that he was going there to lay down his life. We thank you that we know that it's because he laid down his life that our sins can be forgiven, that we can be reconciled to you, the Father, that we can be part of the kingdom. We thank you that now is a time of grace where anyone who would believe and repent and return to your Son could become part of that kingdom. And we also look forward to and anticipate the day where you will make his enemies, a footstool for his feet, so that that promise of a kingdom where there will be no suffering and no tears will come about. We pray, Lord, that all of this would give us a great confidence, knowing that we have the message of salvation for all those who would believe. Amen. Now, I mentioned at the start of the sermon that there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things that we've been thinking about today. So, and you know, this can be anything from, okay, we've talked about this, but what about that? Or can you tell me a little bit more about this? Or you didn't ever talk about this in the passage, whatever it might be, uh, and I'll have a go. a bit of time. It sometimes takes a bit of time to have a think.
Yes, Susie. Yep, so just to repeat the, repeat the question for the recording. So how do we marry up the idea that Solomon's been doing all this killing, particularly when we've got things like in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, that sort of thing. So I guess a couple of things to mention. Um, so the first thing to say is that there is, as you read through the first books, first five books of the Bible, the, the law, you do get the conditions on which, uh, you know, they, the Old Testament is very, has a lot of capital punishment. So, so in these particular circumstances, that's when people will be punished and the punishment will be death. So it's not alien um, in this context. But once again, it's one of those things where it comes to Monday morning, it's your Bible reading, and you read take so-and-so and stone them in the field. You think, oh, what do I do with that? What is God trying to tell me this morning? You know, you've really got to re appreciate that that's in that part of redemptive phase of history. That's not something we're doing today. Um, and of course, we can appreciate that because of how the um, redemptive history unfolds. I mean, the other thing to mention is in our phase of redemptive history, what we've got is in Romans 12, Sorry, Romans 13. So, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and there that exists have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good, and you'll receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he's the servant of God. Avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So there's an expectation there that the authority, and in this case the king, has the authority to put people to death. Now, bearing all that in mind, the other thing to add, I mean, what we've said as we've gone through here is, in this situation, Solomon is putting to death people who oppose the king and they're trying to undermine God's choice of kings. So there's a, you know, that's quite significant. Hence, it deserves death in this context. But the other thing to say is that what we read in the narrative is not prescriptive. Just because people, you know, like we could say, is it appropriate for a um, Israelite in those days to have a concubine to use as a hot water bottle? You know, it's not, it's not saying, therefore, you go and do the same. It's, it's telling you what happened. It's not telling you what you should do. And I think well, that's one of the things that's worth 
bearing in mind as we read the Bible, just because it's in the Bible, you shouldn't necessarily do it. It's just what happened, and therefore how it's unfolded. And similarly, the deaths, you know, you've got, I mean, Joab, if you read back at his story, he's killing people left, right, and center just for the, you know, Abner ended up killing his brother at war. You know, they're in war. That's what things happen. But then he goes and kills him, sort of, you know, at, during peace, and he's invited him. It's all very deceptive, and that's when he kills him. Similar with Amasa. You know, that, there's a difference there between fighting in a war or killing those who are opposing God's plan to just killing to take vengeance. Yes, well, good, let me ask your name. Joel. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, it's funny, yeah, if you try and work it out, it kind of feels a little bit... Oh, you want me to repeat it for the recording? Okay, uh, Okay. so um, we talked a little bit about how um, Adonijah wants to marry Abishag because that strengthens his claim to the throne. But does that make sense? Because ultimately, it's only his concubine, it's not his wife, and that sort of thing, so therefore, does it strengthen it? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing that you get. I'm trying to think. Reuben ends up sleeping with uh, Jacob's concubine, doesn't he? There's, so there's a similar sort of thing that happens there. And uh, But I, I think, I mean, I, I totally agree. Like, obviously, if it was a wife, it, you know, then it's the queen. But I guess it's, it's you know, moving in the right direction, as it were. Um, and obviously, I mean, the the best evidence we've got is the fact how Solomon responds. You know, unless he's totally overreacted, he sees it as this is significant. That's why he wants it. And you know, ultimately, what would Adonijah be thinking other than this is a yeah? But you know, I, I totally totally agree. Like, you'd think maybe there's well, he obviously Adonijah thought that was his best option. But fair fair question. Uh, time for one more, if I'm quick. Of course, just because question time stops doesn't mean we don't have to. We can continue discussing this at the picnic or after service and all that sort of stuff. But one last chance. Okay, we'll move on. We're going to sing our next song, which is O Church Arise. <laughs>